Welcome. This is an awesome podcast. This yeah. is one of my favorite ones. <laughs> to the Jeff. There's a lot of whiskey, Jeff. Macalino. Jeff Macalino. 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 Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. My voice is a little scratchy today for some reason, so I'll keep it brief as I'm moving stuff on my desk because that's good audio. Uh, um, welcome to the show. This will uh, be another fun one for you with <clears throat> myself and John Miles. Uh, John Miles is a uh, former U.S. Navy officer, Fort- Fortune 50 senior executive, entrepreneur, author, and award-winning podcast host. Uh, his podcast is Passion Struck with John R. Miles is the name of the podcast. Uh, and he also has a book, Passion Struck, uh, that uh, you can see the uh, links in the show notes and check that out. Um, hey, real quick, before I pass it on uh, to John and my chat, uh, Women Want Everything is available on Prime Video. So you can get the DVD, of course, on Amazon, or you can rent or buy on Amazon Prime Video now. Uh, there is a special episode. I'm, I, I need to figure out my, my schedule still as, uh, as I record this. Uh, there, there's a special Women Want Everything episode coming out uh, soon, maybe this week, with myself, uh, Rod Grant, Quintari Walker, and Christian Adrianson, uh, the four lovable losers. Uh, we play lovable losers. In real life, none of us are lovable or losers. I'm, I'm kidding, of course. I don't, you know, it's up to you to decide. Uh, Anyways, let's rock and roll. Here's John Miles and me. All right, everybody. I'm very pleased to welcome John Miles to the Jeff Macalino podcast. How are you, John? And Jeff, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, well, let's 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 dive in, shall we? <laughs> I don't I don't have any normal starting questions. Um, so you're I, I want to start with your your podcast, which is Passion Struck with John R. Miles. Um, but so it, it jumped out to me when I started, you know, learning more about you is your book that's coming out in February is also called Passion Struck. I guess actually, if 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 I put up a screenshot, they'll see the picture of the book above your right shoulder. <laughs> um, so what? Um, I know the podcast has been going for a while. So was this something that while you're doing the podcast, you decided, you know what? I think I could write this book. How did the book come about in relation to the podcast? The origination of Passion Struck actually came. From the book first and then the podcast second so interesting i had worked a numerous jobs over my life but one job i never expected i would ever do was to become a publisher of an online magazine and that happened to me i worked for a company called bold business kind of as a fract- fractional executive but it made me the associate publisher of the publication. And then I, for a period of time, became the editor in chief. And as I was going through that, 
I started to do this segment called the Bold Leader Spotlight. And it was one of these things where we would identify um, eight to 10 traits that we found made up what we considered to be a bold leader. And I was interviewing people, profound people like General McChrystal and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Jeff Vinnick uh, here locally, uh, Tampa Bay Bucks players. And as I was leaning more and more into this, I started to start to see a pattern emerge of life principles that these people who we see hit the pinnacle of success were all following in their life. And it's so interesting because it was things that I had employed in my career as well, but had never really thought about how they come together. And I happened to be talking to a friend of mine one day and I was explained to him how I had this Nirvana moment, like all these characteristics represent these people who are willing to risk it all. They've gone from somehow being stuck in their lives to becoming this opposite of it, where they just were willing to do anything to pursue their goals, but they did it intentionally. And my friend goes, it sounds like they're passion struck. And at that point, I was like a light bulb went off. I went immediately after the call to GoDaddy, thought there's no way on earth that this domain is available, and it was. And then coming out of that, uh, I spent a period of time thinking about it, and I started to ruminate on these principles. And at that point, I came up with a book proposal that I started to share with agents, and probably like many people who have a professional career, I was encouraged when I was with these companies not to have a personal brand. So the agent said to me, as you can imagine, you don't really have a following. You don't really have a personal brand. How do you know that this is going to resonate with anyone? And I, at that point said, I have no idea. So at this point it was during COVID and there was no way that you could talk about about this in a live audience, and I'm not sure about you, but when you're doing a virtual talk, you're not really seeing the audience's response. So I decided why not launch a podcast? And so I decided to start Passion Struck to test out the ideas that I was thinking about for the book and the whole concept. And it kind of generated from there. That's that is outstanding. I'm I'm actually glad in in some weird way, and I, I guess I'll 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 tell you why um, that that the book actually inspired the podcast because I, I I feel like that's almost the way I've taken things in my life too is uh, quitting the corporate world and the podcast, which has become a, a very fun thing and and a successful thing. Uh, at the same time, it was only made so I could get my foot in the door and 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 build you know somewhat similar to you it's well i just want to kind of get a little get some connections and and you know be be where you can search me and you can find me on the internet where you you know and my name helps because there's there's not many macalinos out there um but it was the podcast was really when i started this podcast it was okay well i'm just gonna do it as long as i need to until I'm successful in this comedy writing or comedy or acting, whatever. Um, 
and I, I, it definitely changed, obviously, or I, frankly, I probably, if I didn't love it, I wouldn't be doing this anymore. <laughs> um, so I am glad that it's, it's, it's obviously different ideas and different backgrounds and everything, but we, I, I feel like we had similar reasons for starting podcasts um, because you have bigger things in mind. Um, now, your podcast obviously has become highly successful as well. Um, so I assume you're going to keep it going even after the book's, you know, been out a while, right? Is that the plan? No, the podcast is the main thing. In fact, I'm looking at actually adding additional variations of the podcast. Uh, some of them might involve me. Some of them might involve other hosts but they're doing it through the lens of the umbrella of what we're trying to do on Passion Struck. But never in a million years did I think that we were going to become one of the top 50 podcasts in the world. And that is just um, completely humbling. But more importantly, I am just so happy that the content we're putting out is helping so many people around the world. I think there's a uh, an interesting push of people... Uh, well, and and I don't know what it, what it is, if you can point to one thing, but I feel like there is an interesting push of people who are starting to want to follow things they're passionate about, um, as opposed to just go do your eight to five, be miserable, come home, retire, then enjoy your life when you're retired, maybe, um, I drink so much, I always say I'm not going to reach retirement age. So saving for retirement's kind of, yeah, what's the point? Uh, <laughs> but um, I feel like there has been a push of people, and I am I guess I'm I'm obviously one of them, who are like, no, I, I'm going to find a way to do something that I get, you know, it doesn't feel like work. I mean, it could be incredibly difficult, uh, and and it can be hard work. But I would do it anyway. I enjoy doing it. If I can find a way to make a little bit of money, enough money to get by, that's what I want to do as opposed to go be miserable every day, hate my life. And, you know, maybe when I'm 60, 65, I can retire when I can, you know, maybe hopefully still walk a little bit or, you know, I don't, I, I think there's kind of been a rebellion against what's been kind of the American standard for uh you know previous generations i don't I, and i'm i'm guessing that's why your podcast can strike a chord with so many people right yeah i actually started this whole process because i have kids who are in your main listening demographic i have a son who's 25 went to usf if people are looking at this you'll see lots of uh, <laughs> university of south florida uh banners behind you and I have a daughter who's at UF now who's a sophomore but both of them are really worried about uh, the future especially with so much change that's hitting all of us and they're trying to plan for their future and I am trying to give people a guidebook on how do you create a flourishing life uh, a life where you feel significance in what you're doing and so I think a lot of people are struggling with that. So it, it seems to be resonating. Yeah, it, it, it does. 
you know what i i think back just just thinking to um i don't know my i i never my grandparents were dead before i was born but you know they're they're Ita italian immigrants you know they're just trying to stay in the country happy to be in the country that kind of thing i think they just had a different attitude towards work than you know we 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 have a lot of luxuries that they didn't have back then um Maybe some of that is is bad on on us for for, for uh, being maybe a little spoiled compared to what there was in the past. But just technology advances. I mean, I, I, I not for nothing. I I went to tweet the other day and I thought, eh, I don't. Eh, it's probably not worth. But I I typed out a tweet that said, "Imagine pooping before smartphones. It must have been so boring." Um, <laughs> I mean. But my children, your children, have never lived in a world where they can't pull out a phone every time they sit on a toilet. As as crude as that is, it's still the reality they've they've been raised in. Is that uh, you know my my son asks me questions sometimes that I don't know the answer to, and I love his curiosity. But I'm like, well, pull out that little information box and check for yourself because I I can't tell you um, that I didn't have that at his age, um, not quite yet. Um, so I, 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 I think that some of that has to play into it is the ability to see maybe what's out there and, uh, just get a little more excitement and stimulation than people who didn't have, you know, who had maybe three stations on a black and white TV. I don't know. I, I feel like that had some, maybe has something to do with it. Uh, yeah, I find and one of the most important things that I talk about is that throughout my life, I have had to reinvent myself so many times uh, I, I can't even practically count. And it's interesting uh, because it's something that I preach to my kids that they're going to have to figure out as they grow through this life. And as I was writing the book, I ran into some pretty incredible research by this guy named Dan Swabble, who's a partner and research director at a place called Future Workplace. And he interviewed more than 1,200 remarkable individuals. These interviews ranged from CEOs, celebrities, New York Times bestselling authors, politicians, and even astronauts. And through these conversations, he observed prevailing characteristics, but the one that all of them followed was the consistent pursuit of reinvention. And to me, if you're going to start displacing 300 to 500 million workers over the next decade alone, which is what all the research I'm seeing is, is saying it could even be worse than that, then you're going to have no choice but to become a constant reinventioner. Yeah. And so I think it's one of the most important traits that people can learn to cultivate in themselves. And to me, what comes along with it is if you're going to reinvent yourself, you need to be a constant learner. And the only way I think you become a constant learner is to become a constant reader and that all three of them are linked together. Um, and it's amazing how few people today are reading books yet. What differentiates a person who's illiterate and a person who's not the fact that they read books. So, so many of us are illiterate just because we're choosing not to do what 
seems like such an easy thing to do, read a book, but so many people keep putting it off. Yeah, it's uh that's a fascinating cultural trend. I'm lucky with with both of my kids so far. My daughter, her Christmas list is just full of books. She wants a guitar and she wants all, you know, 100 different books. Uh my son likes reading books, but mainly sports books and and you know, funny kids books. He's he's 11. He's okay. Um he's still reading. Um I was an avid reader too. And I always say I, I can pinpoint the the book that made me stop being an avid reader because it was required summer reading. And uh, there were some great ones. Uh, Flowers for Algernon. I love that book. To Kill a Mockingbird was good. The Great Gatsby was good. And then we had to read a book called The Good Earth by Pearl Buck, I want to say. And I I think I would have preferred to be waterboarded than <laughs> than read that book um it was the worst and it was that that i can pinpoint i was a you know read a book a week kid not for school just for you know my own pleasure and after forcing myself through that book i think i read maybe five books in the next 10 years like reading assignments for school go online get the cliff notes and i guess that's technically maybe cheating but you know whatever it's too late to take my degrees away uh, but, uh, so I hope my, my main goal, I guess, as a parent is do not let my kids encounter that problem where they just are just, they get reading fatigue from one terribly outdated book that they're forcing a high school kid to read. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it, 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 the other thing is nowadays you've got audiobooks. You've got podcasts, which can be educational and informative. Um, and I think sometimes that's actually maybe not audiobooks as much, but then obviously there's YouTube also that can be educational in little snippets. And I think that's actually not it's it's so good in some ways, but I think it it's training people to stop reading, which I do think is a, a bad trend, something I've tried to fight myself on. Because again, even, you know, 18 years later, it's like, oh, I remember that awful book. I don't want to read this book. It might be that bad. Not realizing that I'm an adult. If I don't like it on page 10, I can just toss it. I don't have to read the rest of it. I'm not being tested on it when I get back from summer. Uh, but uh, yeah, again, it, it, it's, it is interesting. And I think we're on a weird technological point in a plateau or a tipping point, whatever you want to call it, where, like you said about the jobs missing and 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 reading, how how many people are going to continue reading as opposed to saying, I can learn that on a YouTube video, and then, you know, I I, I you know I'm I'm enough of a drinker that if I go on YouTube to learn something by you know, ten you know an hour later I'm watching the top twenty movie endings you didn't expect or so, just some stupid video that you know got me hooked um and that's certainly not helping me be productive as a person or a smarter person um so yeah i, I it is an interesting i'm <laughs> i'm not old but i'm glad i'm old enough that it's like all right well i eh, at least i'm not growing up trying to figure out what i want to do in my life 
like like your kids and and like my kids are kind of getting to that point if i if i were a kid nowadays i'd be like i don't know what job's going to exist you know there's going to be professional athletes and podcasters and <laughs> that's, that's that's about all we know for sure that's going to be around 20 years from now right <laughs> it's funny i actually observed a professor interview chat gpt in a mm. recent episode so who knows maybe ai will take over our jobs as well someday I, th that's true i have heard there's actually a joe rogan ai experience and it is the voice sounds like i've never listened to it because part of me is like i don't want to even give that person a a, a listen from me <laughs> it's one of those <laughs> like i don't i don't want them to think that they got one more listener no 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 that's that scares me a little bit but yeah i don't even i, I don't know that they're ever going to be good enough to I don't know <laughs> to simulate what yeah. it is to be a human. I don't know how you replicate Joe Rogan because my friends who've been on his show tell me he's like the Larry King of podcasting in that he doesn't prepare at all. So what you get is just him being raw in the moment and inquisitive. So it would be very difficult for anything to try to replicate him, I would think, or, or any of us to your point. Yeah, well, I I do think. By the way, I, I it's interesting. I um, I've actually shifted. Not I'm not comfortable enough to to do like that. Where Rogan, I I think knows very very little about the person, unless he already knows the person. Um, but I I do think there was a and comments that I've received from people also kind of reflect this. The less I prepare, within reason, the less I prepare for a guest the better the episode actually ends up being because it allows me to listen and be inquisitive as opposed to, well, here's the, you know, 17 questions I wrote down to ask the person. But again, I think that only works for certain styles of podcast. Uh, probably, I don't know that it would go great with, with, with your style, for instance. Uh, if you were just like, I don't know, tell me about yourself. I don't know anything. Uh, <laughs> but uh but I also, you know, I go for, uh, well, you know, you, you see me drinking. It's, 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 <laughs> it's not a professional uh, podcast. It's more of a, it's, it's a fun podcast. It's a, it's a, it's a, actually, I do say you, you, if people listen to this podcast, I like to think they learn something most episodes, but you know, not, not enough that it hurts your head or anything. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, it does, I don't think, and again, maybe it's selfish. I don't think AI could simulate me. I, you know, from a, you, I can't simulate myself, frankly. I don't know what the hell is going to happen when I open my mouth. <laughs> uh, so I, I do think that that's, that's where, are they ever going to be able to actually do it? God, I hope not, just from a, you know, team human perspective. <laughs> um that's bizarre though too even saying that if you think about it it's like we i i think that's almost the attitude some people have and maybe obviously i guess it's mine too to an extent is it's almost like we're 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 fighting against these ai these this technology for jobs and 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 control and power where i think it would be healthier if we were like eh, we're working together to make 
you know, make humans better by implementing AI. Um, I certainly don't think that's the fear that comes with it. And maybe that's all James Cameron's fault with Terminator. <laughs> Blame him. The thing that worries me are some of the technologies like the deep fake, where this stuff has actually been out there now for about 15 years. And even in its infancy, it was good. I, mean, I remember when they impersonated President Obama and how realistic it was. And that was over a decade ago. So imagine what those capabilities are. And then what if you used that to influence someone? Because some of the stuff I've seen, the way that they're impersonating people, it looks as if it's actually that person delivering the message. And I just go back, for instance, to politics, even up to President Kennedy and Richard Nixon era, where they weren't really on camera that much. I mean, Kennedy was the first one really in that campaign who was using television to help, I guess, encourage his voters to come in. And it, I think people through that power of seeing him utilize that to overtake Nixon in that election, it started to become a bigger and bigger aspect to now, I mean, look at how much we look at President Biden, and imagine if that would have been present during FDR's presidency, people would have seen him in the wheelchair, they would have seen him more feeble, uh, but we didn't get that because he wasn't constantly in front of us like things are today. So I, it, it does worry me a little bit about how this could influence not only politics, but other elements of our lives if it's not properly policed in the future. Yeah. And, and that, that's the, that is the scary part too, because it's, I think most people are smart enough if they hear someone say, did you hear that Biden or Trump said this, that, the other, Yeah, okay, whatever you say that they said that, but now you could actually have them saying it, even though it might not be them. That is, yeah, that's a scary proposition when you can't even trust your own eyes and ears to detect the truth. Um, because again, even that, that's kind of the delineation I have is when someone tells me, you know, one of these big politicians said something, I said, nah, I, I I'm going to have to see it because I, I know how the media works. I don't, you know, and I, or I know you're right wing or left wing. So you're going to say something outrageous, you know, Trump never said to drink bleach. <laughs> he never said it. <laughs> um, yeah, just little things like that. It's like, yeah, no, I'm I'm going to have to hear him say, no, he didn't say that. You're just interpreting and manipulating what he said. Um, but it's that easy now to, I'm, I'm sure you can make a video of any, especially someone who's, I guess this is part of it too, especially someone who's got so much video footage of them. I, I'm sure that plays a role in it is I'm sure they could do a great 360 of any major politician because They've been on camera for millions of hours um, and their voices have said millions of words uh, that, that are, you know, easy to, yeah, I get, I guess we have too. So they could fake us. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, that's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking as you said that. <laughs> yeah. Oops. Well, there, there, well, there goes not being able to simulate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, getting back to, to books, 
there is one I wanted to mention to your audience that many of them might not be familiar with, but I think it's important uh, because I wish I would have read this book when I was in my 20s. And it's a book by an author named Tim Kasser, and it's titled The High Price of Materialism. And in it, he offers a scientific explanation of how our contemporary culture of consumerism and materialism affects our everyday happiness and psychological health. And I'm putting this out there because if your listeners are from 23 to 40, um, I found myself during that age bracket as this high achiever who was pursuing everything that I just talked about. I was enamored with the materialistic things. I wanted that BMW. I wanted that nice house. I wanted the success. I wanted the paycheck. But what I found and what he highlights in this book is that those people who center their value system on the accumulation of wealth, material possessions, and success, it actually leads them to unhappiness, which then leads to anxiety, depression, low esteem, intimacy problems, relationship issues, et cetera. So um, if there's something that I could highlight to your audience, it's really take notice of this because Cornell put out this really interesting study in 2018 where they looked at thousands of people who were nearing death and they asked them, out of all the regrets that you have in life, what is the biggest one? It's that they pursued these things that I'm talking about. 70, 76% said they pursued these things that I'm talking about instead of pursuing an authentic life that led to the feeling of them wanting the aspirations that they had when they were younger. And I think what ends up happening, and you've probably seen it in your life, is we start out you know, thinking about these things when we're kids. We're even thinking about them when we're in college. And then we enter the real world and all of a sudden they don't become our aspirations anymore and we don't feel they're attainable. I know, I remember being young and looking at my parents' house and thinking, how in the world am I ever going to be able to afford that standard of living? And I think more and more people um, are feeling that way. And I would just twist it that that shouldn't be what you're marking your happiness and what you think your life goals should be. It's so much more than that. And to me, that's a wake up call. I wish I would have realized when I was in my mid twenties. Yeah. It, it's, um, yeah, I, I think I got there in my mid thirties basically <laughs> where it was like, yeah, I don't, a lot of, um, and, and and one of my friends actually uh referred me to a book i i'll i'll mention here too um you've probably heard of it uh cafe on the edge of the world i think it's called by john strelecki um and it's it has a similar you know what why do you want why do you want this extra money so i can buy these nice things why do you want those nice things so i can distract myself from how miserable i am at work it's like, mm, that's, you know, well, and the point of that was, I, you know, it was kind of, I don't, have you seen the movie Office Space? Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, so where they asked Peter, what, what would you do if, I think it was a hundred thousand inflation. So what would you do if you had a hundred thousand dollars? He'd be like, 
nothing. I, I wouldn't want to do anything. Um, and in this book, though, the, if, if money was nothing, if you could just never work again, what would you do? And he said, fishing. Okay, why don't you figure out a way to make money fishing? Um, and, you know, that guy allegedly opened up a, a little charter fishing boat where he just went out fishing every day. He took other people. He did what he loved, so he didn't need to take vacations. He didn't need to buy expensive things to distract him from from what he loved doing, which is what paid the bills. And um, there's something, obviously, I don't know if that, that part of it was a true story uh, or not, but the idea there is, it, well, if you just, all this other stuff, and, and people have, I, I, I think the life experience part is important, and different people have different things they want out of life um i'm i'm okay with taking vacations and travel but to me it's like eh. when i used to work in a corporate job i took vacations once a year because it was like i need to reward myself for all of the suffering i go through the other 51 weeks of the year um it wasn't to see new it was just i just want to relax for a week so i'm going to blow all my excess money to take this vacation where now, you know, the last few years, I, I, well, I did go on a bachelor party, so not exactly true, but that was, a, you know, that was different. Uh, but it's like uh, the idea of taking a vacation, it's like, eh, if I book a movie role and I'm away from my family for six months, I'll take them on a nice, long, expensive vacation when I get back because I'll miss them and want to just spend time with them away from the world. But that that's more for them than for me, even. Like, it's just, uh, I don't know. I, I I think philosophy and materialism is, again, it can be a little different than travel because that's what some people love to do and, and experience new things and new cultures and all that. But I think it's a similar thing is I, I do think people try to fill the empty void in their in their heart or their soul with material, you know, material things. And it's like, eh, there's probably a better better answer hopefully for out there and i you know that's you the rich people which you know you you can say you know when uh jim carrey uh had a quote where he said something like uh if people only knew the millions of dollars don't make a difference and someone a comedian was like hey jackass tell that to the guy who's getting kicked out of his house because he hasn't been able to pay rent for three months. It makes a difference. It doesn't make your life better. It doesn't fill the hole inside of you. But don't say, it's a little tone deaf to say, oh, you go back to your job you hate. It doesn't make you happy to be rich and famous. Um, so I don't know. I, I do think there there needs to be more uh, introspection. Is that, a, is that a word? Introspecting? Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we, we need to have more self-awareness. We need to uh, do self-introspection. Well, I think that I, I think that is a core component of life is being self-aware. And I think it's one of those skill sets that I sure as hell wish people would have taught us more when we were in high school and we were growing up, because I think so few people are self-aware and they don't realize that when their ego or other aspects of their life are creating toxicity in how they're approaching relationships and other aspects of their life. And that is a huge blind spot for so many people.
Yeah. Now I I want to talk about um and that book by the way was The High Price of Materialism, correct? I want to make sure I wrote that down correctly for my for my own it was just for my own reference. The High Price of Materialism by Tim Kasser. Okay. I wanted to make sure I I wrote I the notes I take are usually for me, not for the podcast. <laughs> um so when, you know, going back to you and your start, I know you went to the Naval Academy, um, which I guess not all my listeners know, but now they do. Um, you, you you were in the Navy, you were an officer, correct? Yes. And then did you just, after that, you just kind of jumped into the corporate world or what was your, I mean, obviously there it seems like you had a reinvention at that point, right? I had everything planned. I was in the military. I loved what I was doing. I worked for uh, an arm of the Navy that serviced the National Security Agency, and it afforded me some great experiences. I got to be on ships, aircraft carriers, which is a ship, but uh, a little bit different. I got to fly. I got to be on submarines, spent a tour of duty with uh, the Navy SEALs, and my last tour while I was on active duty was I was doing encounter drug interdiction out of Key West, Florida. And it was a great command because we had, you name it, CIA, DEA, Customs, FBI. Um, the Brits were on it. Uh, we had the Dutch on it. It was just this interactive agency. And as a result, I got approached by a bunch of three-letter organizations to apply, and um, I ended up going through that process, ended up selecting the FBI, and my whole career was ahead of me. I was going to be a special agent, and unfortunately, Congress repeats its cycles, and we had this infighting that we're having now, and they couldn't get a budget passed, and all of a sudden, my Quantico class got recycled, and I had no plan B. I was married and I had to find an income source. And so I immediately did the only thing I thought I, I could at that point, which was just blindly reaching out and calling people. And that ended up leading me to the consulting world, spent a number of years there, built myself up to the point that I was about ready to become a partner. I was working at Arthur Anderson, which doesn't exist anymore, but at the time was the largest out of the big four consulting firms. So this is your Deloitte, Pricewaterhouse, Ernst & Young. And we had a client named Enron, which many of the listeners may know, may not know, but I was at the epicenter of that. I lived in Houston. Enron wasn't my client, but it didn't matter. In a matter of three weeks, the whole firm basically came to a grounding, 80,000 people, billions of dollars uh, went out of business overnight over this. And so I was thrust into another time that I had to invent myself. Um, I had an opportunity that I could have gone and continued in consulting, but I kind of had a bad taste as a result of this. So I decided to pivot into industry. I wanted to get global experience. So I took um, a job with a company called Lendlease that was based in Australia. They were in 45 countries. Got that experience, and then uh, from there went to some well-known companies people know, uh, Lowe's Home Improvement, where I, I spent my time there. The technology organization culminating and being the chief data officer, 
became a, the CIO at Dell company many people are familiar with. And then um, I pivoted again because I wanted to take the path to becoming a CEO. And I did private equity uh, type of work for the next decade of my life before doing what I'm doing now, ended up becoming the CEO of two or three companies. So uh, an interesting uh, ride doing multiple things, but uh, um, yeah, I wish I would have started the journey I'm on now earlier though. Yeah. Well, it's, I do wonder if some of the adversity, uh, you know, was, I, I, I always wonder this, I guess it's the, the time travel, uh, you know, the back to the future question of, well, if you could go back and change it, well, but think maybe I would have been a different person if I hadn't gone through that, you know, with, with the, the, you know, the FBI stuff, or I can't even imagine, I, I can't imagine, you know, the consulting work with, with Enron, I mean, you know, out, completely outside of your control, but obviously, you know, you, you felt it quick and yeah, I can't imagine you, uh, I, I'd, I'd be really curious about uh, other people who had your job at that company. Did they go back into consulting work or did they also say, nah, I'm not getting involved in, in this thing after that, <laughs> the floor just, I can't imagine what that would be like to just be like, what the hell just happened here? Uh, the vast majority ended up continuing in consulting. Uh, but I mean, I lost multiple hundreds of thousands in that deal. I, my boss, who was one of the top five or six partners in the whole firm lost $25 million. Oh, um, but it, I've never worked on it. Ron, when I was at Arthur Anderson, uh, because it was our largest client. It was the largest client in the firm, but we had 3000 people ish in that office. Um, and Houston is the Mecca for energy companies. And so we needed people to work on Halliburton or Exxon Mobil or other Reliant Energy. And so I had a portfolio of these other companies. So the big awakening for me was we kept getting these messages from the leadership team that they would send out in voicemails. Hey, everything's okay. Don't worry about this. We've got it covered. This is way overblown. And it, reality hit me when one day I'm, I'm in my office, I'm doing work and I look up and there are two gentlemen standing in my doorway. And one was a cybersecurity professional from our Chicago office. And the other was a cyber crime individual from the FBI who said, uh, you need to turn your laptop over immediately. And I said, I'm happy to do it, but I don't really understand why. I've never worked on Enron. I'm assuming that's why you're here. And they said, it really doesn't matter. We're here just to take a look at your computer. We're going to download your files, and then we'll hand it back to you in 24 hours. I never got that computer back. All the computers in the firm were taken, and they were shipped up to St. Charles, where they actually still have them. And the sad thing about the whole company, uh, imagine this is a company that's in probably 100 countries, 80,000 people. Um, about a year and a half later, we were acquitted of all wrongdoing. But at that point, the whole company is out of business. Wow. And and to, to me, it was just a, 
it all boiled down in this huge company to the decisions of really a few individuals because the way that these auditing firms worked on engagements, uh, Arthur Anderson was the only one who did things differently. So typically you have an engagement partner for those who are familiar with it, and then you have a quality control partner. And any of the other firms, the quality control partner would override the engagement partner if they saw that the practices that they were doing were not in the best interest of the firm or were breaking laws or something else. In the case of Arthur Anderson, that quality control partner was telling the engagement partner just that, but the engagement partner could overrule the quality control. And so this is where greed and the fact that so much hundreds of millions of dollars were coming in from Enron every single year that this person made a decision that ended up sinking the whole company. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That that's, that's even harder to take. See, I, I was, I don't know, 10 years old or something when the whole Enron thing happened. Or, so I, I vaguely know of it, but not, yeah, that that's even worse that it was really just a couple of bad apples that just, I mean, put 80,000 people out of work. I mean, that's, Shows you how um, uh, how uh, frail, I don't know if that would be the right word, or temporary things can be, you know. And how much, look, how how much, no matter how many people you work with, how, how much is always going to be outside of your control, right? I mean, if, if there's 79,999 employees who, you know, had did nothing wrong, had no idea anything wrong was going on, but just a you know, that's uh yeah. <laughs> that's well a on that and that was a huge realization. I, when I told you I made this realization later in life that I wish I would have made earlier, I tell my son this all the time, he's 25. I I reached this point where I was doing the CEO thing, but still you're reporting to a board and it just dawned on me. Why am I spending so many hours of my life making other people rich, other people's dreams come true when I could be spending that time pursuing my own dream in life. And so I'm a huge advocate, especially as this world evolves, that more and more people need to become solopreneurs or take charge of their own life because the only re way you're going to fire yourself is by doing something stupid. And I always felt I could lose it all. And I had the smarts where I could do it again. But when you're fired, like I was at Arthur Anderson for no fault of my own, no, no, no one was, I mean, it puts you in a situation that it's, it's hard to recover from. Whereas even if it sucks when you're starting out trying to get this thing going, you reach a point where you control your own destiny. And so I think that that's going to be more paramount in the times to come because I see this shift happening in the marketplace where fewer people are going to be employees of these big companies and more people are going to be independent contractors. And I'm just waiting for this shift to occur because let's face it, if Amazon has the opportunity to save $4 billion on the bottom line by using AI to displace 20,000 people, 
what do you think is going to happen? Not even a thought, <laughs> not even an afterthought. Yeah, no, it's, you know, th this goes back to, to the, um, I, I feel like I gained so much of my inspiration as, as you know, it's a silly movie, a Mike judge movie, but office space with the, um, Peter sitting down with the bobs in that scene where he's like, look, I could bust my ass and make in a tech a, a million dollars. Am I going to see any of that? No. So I do the bare minimum to get my paycheck, and and that's uh, my biggest problem was I didn't do the bare minimum. I did above and you know the above and beyond because oh I'll get a five percent raise instead of a two percent raise. Um, when you're still you know I even made this joke back when I I worked while I was in college at USF I worked for the Rays. The, the baseball team um well i guess you know you live here but, um i worked there and there was and i guess i can say this without getting in trouble they 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 have arbitration uh years with players before they're free agents but they they can negotiate with the team uh and bj upton uh was going to arbitration with the rays and he wanted 3.3 million and the rays wanted to pay him 3 million not really, you know, a massive gap, but the Rays had a practice of we we don't negotiate. We put our number because that's the fair number, and they take it or we go to arbitration. And uh, I think that's still their their philosophy, which is which is fine. Um, so, baseball operations comes to me and says, "Can you go through and find all of the times that BJ Upton said negative things in the press?" so we can use this at his arbitration hearing. And I'm like, so wait, you guys saved $300,000. How much of that do I, you know, I'm making $6 and 67 cents an hour right now. How much of that do I get? Do I get 30 grand if you win? Um, I did not. And they did win. <laughs> Sorry, BJ. I don't know if I had anything to do with it. I feel terrible in hindsight, but actually, yeah. but, but it, it's kind of the, you know, taking it to a, 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 a micro, a, a fun example uh, it's like yeah i just saved this billionaire three hundred thousand dollars i didn't make an extra penny like it was like ah attaboy thanks bj upton bj <laughs> upton lived uh, a house or two down from a friend of mine on davis <laughs> islands and it's funny because his kids were you know elementary school kids at the time used to seeing families and everything and <laughs> one of the girls goes to her my my friend the father and says how come bj has so many wives that come over every single day because <laughs> because he made a good amount of money that's why <laughs> <laughs> like how do you explain that one to your kid <laughs> oh god it's it's his aunts <laughs> <laughs> he just has a lot of friends that's all yeah, no, that's that's uh, and it was it was it was actually thinking back to my time with the Rays, it was like BJ and I were he was a little older than me, but it was so many young guys in that clubhouse. It was an interesting dynamic. Me going through college with these guys who are making millions of dollars and famous playing playing in the World Series, and I'm like making seven fifty an hour, like. But I was hanging out yeah. with him and stuff in the locker room. But yeah, well, none of <laughs> the, 
the Rays don't play. I mean, we just saw it with Glass now, where he wanted twenty million or something. You know, they're not going to pay it, so they're going to get the best deal that they can on the market for him. Off to the Dodgers. Ugh. No, yeah. I think they. I think for them, they also saw how prone he was to injuries, so it it was a a thing. But I actually, no, it's the, interesting. The, the pitcher they got from the Dodgers is is got a, a, a high level uh, potential, so might work out. The, the, the Rays, in fairness, seems like they, except for in the playoffs, but baseball is such an anomaly where you're just, you play 162 games and then you you get to the tournament, you throw all that out and, in, oh, you best of three. It's like, <laughs> they played 162 games and you're making them play a best of three to, to move on? Oof, that seems really harsh. <laughs> Well, and the interesting thing about the Rays is they definitely play Moneyball. So yeah. I think they use AI and statistics as much as anyone. But if you look at the teams that tend to go the whole way, I mean, just look at Dusty Baker. And he is ignoring when it comes down to the fundamental decisions he was making. He was ignoring a lot of the data that he was being told. Whereas, I mean, I think you remember... When we pulled the pitcher who was having an incredible game and how pissed off he got, yeah. Um, compared to Dusty leaves the the pitcher in when everything is telling him to pull him out and ends up being fundamentally the right decision to make. And sometimes, I think it's like anything in life: you can ha have all this intuition you want, but you got to weigh it against intuition and um what has been your past track record to make yeah. educated decisions. And we see it year in, year out with the Rays that uh, relying solely on the data is not uh, taking them to that eventual pinnacle that they want to do. Uh, yeah. And you know what? It's exactly, it, it, I, I think it ties right on in, in a, um, I've thought in a, in a sports analogy is, over 162 games doing this is best mathematically over the course but in the course of what could be a two two games you, you lose game one game two you're done you kind of have to the it's it's almost like in i've always said in football if you can nowadays with the extra point move back the success rate's like 94 percent going for two most teams are about 50 percent so mathematically, if you go for two every time, you'll gain a couple extra points over the course of the season. However, the game you lose by two points because you went for two and missed all three times and you lose by two points, you're going to get fired because that where'd your smarty pants thing, you know, in a game to game situation, it doesn't work in a over the long haul. Sure. It, it, it mathematically will work because it is math, but um yeah, that's that's a that's that's life in a nutshell. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, I mean, I I talked to some of the most popular authors that there are, and I remember having a conversation with my friend Dan Pink, um, who people probably know his books Drive, and he's got multiple New York Times bestsellers. And I asked him, you know, how how do you judge your success? He goes, I'm as good as the last book is performing. Mm. And I think 
that's important for people to understand getting back to reinvention that we talked about at the beginning of the episode is um, when you look at most of these billionaires who are on top, it's not as if you see Elon Musk just doing nothing and going to that island like you were talking about. They, they would be completely bored. It's, it's as if they're constantly moving, constantly pivoting, doing the next thing. And I think you can apply this to people's life or you can apply this to companies. It, it's interesting. If you look at the Fortune 50 from 20 years ago, you're going to find that 55% of them no longer exist. And a lot of them is because they stop reinventing. The same thing goes with people. They get to a point where they feel comfortable and they stop working as hard. And a key message is, you know, that's fine. And maybe some of us will have enough money to, to realize that. But for the vast majority of us, you're going to have to keep upping your game and pivoting and doing things um, throughout it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. No, no matter what area you try to to make it in, I think it's that same that same uh, that same situation. And I wish I could think. I'm, I'm <laughs> again, but it's just all all the wisdom I get in my life are from Office Space and from from Joe Madden. <laughs> when I when I worked for the Rays, Joe Madden, I remember him giving one spring training. He gave like the five pillars of a major league baseball career. And he's like, this is every career on the planet. It's, uh, you know, step one is I want to be there. Step two is I want to stay here. Step three is I belong here. He's like, you need to get to step three before you see success. Step four is I want to get paid. And step five is I want to win championships. So Obviously, that's a very specific for baseball. I don't know if those are all correct either, but seems seems like the path, and it is. It's it's you know I want to do this. I I want to keep doing this. I I deserve. I, I I'm doing the right. You know I belong here. I'm doing the right thing. I'm not. An, you kind of get over the imposter syndrome. Then it's I want to make more money and I want to win championships, which doesn't necessarily translate to everything, but. Step four and five are kind of the same for the corporate world, I would feel, or for the entrepreneurial spirit. No, I think it's a big thing. I, I mean, I faced my fair share of self-doubt, even when I was in those high-level positions. And it's like the higher positions you get and the more you achieve, it's like the more self-doubt you have and the more imposter syndrome you have um, about comparing yourself to others. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make is Benjamin Hardy wrote a great book, uh, the gap versus the gain. And I think too many of us compare ourselves to the gap instead of the gain. And the gap is we compare ourselves to someone else that we emulate someone else's success. So it would be me trying to compare myself to Joe Rogan and thinking that I'm going to achieve what he has done in podcasting, as opposed to looking at myself from three years ago and the gains that I've made from there, yet so many of us, and I'm, I've done the same thing so many times, is we end up comparing ourselves to others, and then it causes us to feel the self-doubt, to feel like we don't belong where, where we're at, instead of, as Joe Madden said, you know, owning the fact that 
that we belong in the big leagues and we deserve to be there and we're just as good as good as everyone else. So I think there's, that's a great life principle to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Joe, Joe Madden, uh, just because I brought him up the, he's a guy you, uh, go out for a drink with him and he will not talk about baseball one time. I mean, if, unless you bring it up, he will talk about everything. He's such a, he's such an intelligent dude. He could have, he could have been president of the United States if he wanted to be, um, I'm glad he chose the much more noble professional of, of being a baseball manager. I'm sure the Cubs fans <laughs> are too. <laughs> uh, John, uh, I mentioned the book and the podcast before I let you go. I want to not only reiterate those, but uh, give you the floor to tell my listeners where they can, uh, where they should go to find you. And obviously also the book and everything. Yeah. Um, you can see the book above my shoulder. Or I'll put up a copy of it right, right here. If it's going to show. Thank you, Zoom. Nope, it's not showing. Sorry <laughs> about that. I'll um, get a good screenshot of it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the book is called Passion Struck, and it's 12 life principles to unlock your purpose and ignite your most intentional life. And people often ask me, if you were 25 again, what would you tell your past self? I would tell them to read this book because I dedicated this to my kids. It's really about how do you reinvent yourself at any age? How do you overcome self-doubt? And the way I wrote it is you can enter this at any point and understand these principles and apply them to your life. Um, you can buy this anywhere that you purchase books. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart. But if you do that and you go to my website and you put in your information, um, I curated $300 worth of gifts for my audience, there's some really great takeaways from master classes to workbooks um, that you get access to if you pre-order this before it goes live. Um, my website is passionstruck.com. My personal website is John R. Miles, or the Passion Struck Podcast is wherever you listen to podcasts. It's in the health category and is the number one uh, alternative health podcast globally. And um, if you're looking to how to up-level your life, it's a great place to start. Amen. Amen. Well, John, uh, I thank you, uh, so much for, uh, for coming on with me. I, uh, this has been a rewarding conversation for me. Uh, so I am, uh, hope it, hoping it, it has been for the listeners as well. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much, Jeff, for, for having me. That's it. That's all. Hope you had a ball. Thank you, John Miles, for joining me. Check out his podcast and the book, Passion Struck. Um, all the links are there uh, in the show notes, um, as well as, I believe, a link to uh, Women Want Everything, the movie uh, that gazillions of people have asked me about. Well, now you have your answer where you can watch it. So go go to it. Um and let me know uh, what you think, uh, or don't. I don't really care. Just, just enjoy the movie. Enjoy the movie. Huh? Um, make sure you're su subscribed to YouTube. Next week's episode, I am going to put on YouTube because it is with a gorgeous uh, model, uh, Michaela Vibohova, and uh, I just feel like you should be able to look at her while we talk. So. <laughs> Make sure you're subscribed over on the YouTube channel for that. 
my Cuban sandwich reviews and, uh, you know, some drunk Jeff eats, some drunk Jeff sketches, drunk Jeff versus sober Jeff. It's going to be a lot more of that stuff coming after I move. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm keeping some content going on there as best I can in the interim. So, boom, it's over. for listening it was amazing <laughs> i i loved it be sure to come back for another great episode i'm one wing away from jeff macalino of the jeff macalino podcast how much time did you spend on thinking of the name of your podcast you want to just straight that's my name i'll add the word podcast to it yep see you next week